Great, thanks Peter. Well, hopefully you've got uh, Matthew chapter 22 uh, open in front of you and a few of the younger folk at the back got your listen-up sheets ready uh, to fill in as you listen out for particular things uh, that we're going to see in God's Word this morning. Uh, let me pray very quickly once more as we come to God's Word. Father God, we thank you once again that you're a speaking God and Lord, we just ask that you might help us to be a listening people and we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as you can imagine, there's a, a lot of hard work goes into planning uh, and organizing a wedding. And one of the hardest bits, I think, I don't know whether this was the case for Kian and Bex in the lead up to their wedding yesterday, but from our perspective, when we got married, one of the hardest bits was actually working out who to invite. You've got all those discussions around color of bridesmaids dresses and reception, and where you're going to be and, and timings and all that sort of stuff. But maybe the most awkward and difficult conversations and the hardest thing to do was actually to work out who to invite, who would end up on the wedding list. And of course, normally you begin with uh, the close family and friends, they go straight on. But then you begin to think about all these other people in life maybe these old friends that you got on so well with years ago but then maybe there's these new acquaintances from work that you've just got to know and you've only got x number of spaces on your list and at some point you've got to draw the line and work out who comes onto that list and who doesn't well things get even more awkward when someone turns up at your reception who wasn't on the list and that actually happened at mine hands wedding uh, it was uh, it wasn't a good moment I remember it vividly even today we were in the reception venue and the people were pouring in we were sort of lurking around ready to, to greet people as they came in and a guy called Lewis who was a friend from years past and invited him to the service with his girlfriend uh, but not the reception after and I nudged Hannah and said oh and Lewis was coming in, and I thought, oh, I've got to go and speak to him. So I wandered over to Lewis, I hadn't even seen him that day. I said, Lewis, hello, mate, it's lovely to see you. Thanks for, thanks for coming to our, our celebration. But I'm afraid we haven't got capacity. It was a sit-down meal. We were, we were, like, totally full. And I had to say to Lewis, I'm afraid there isn't room for you at the reception. And so just as everyone else began to sit down, to begin their food, Lewis and his lady friend took this slow walk of shame uh, out of the building. It was a horrible moment for us to have to have that conversation, and no doubt a horrible moment for, for Lewis as well. Well, in the parable before us today, you may have noticed in the reading that we have a similar scenario. A great wedding feast prepared by a king for his son. The invites have gone out. The guests have turned up. But just as the party is about to begin, the king notices one man who shouldn't be there. And so he wanders over to confront him. And for this individual, it wasn't just a quiet word and a slow walk of shame. This man was unceremoniously dragged away from the banquet. You see that in verse 13? Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, ultimately, this is a parable about who will be in and who will be out on that final day. For some, there will be dancing and celebration and feasting. For others, we read, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you look back at chapter 21, 
You'll see that this is a parable that is directed primarily towards the Jewish leaders who are becoming more and more and more hostile to Jesus. They just want him out of the way. You can see that. Look at the end of chapter 21. This is what we read in verse 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They knew that Jesus was speaking these parables against them. And so, verse 46, they look for a way to arrest him. They just wanted Jesus out of the picture altogether. And it's those same Jewish leaders amongst the, the wider crowds that Jesus is now addressing in this next parable. And the question is, how will they respond? How will these people now respond to the teaching of of Jesus. And of course, it's the same question, isn't it, for us today? When Jesus invades our own personal space, when Jesus speaks directly and sometimes uncomfortably into our own lives, when he challenges our well formed worldviews, how will we respond this morning to the teaching of Jesus? Well, there's five main parts to this parable. Firstly, we have a lavish banquet have a look at verse 1 and 2 Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son last week if you remember the kingdom of heaven was described as treasure hidden in a field it was described as a as a pearl of great price of such infinite value and worth and it was described as a net they gathered up all different kinds of fish before those fish were sorted out into two distinct groups. Well, here Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. And the message is clear. To come to the feast is to enter the kingdom of God. What we have here is a picture of salvation. A lavish banquet and a generous invitation to feast forever in the presence of the King. It's a picture of fellowship with God. Ultimately, it's a picture of heaven itself. As one author puts it so well, it is a feast of fat things. I like that expression. A feast of fat things, because at this feast, in the presence of God, no one will go hungry. Every single heart will be fully satisfied in Him. And so I wonder, in the busyness of 21st century life, do we slow down enough to contemplate what we have in Christ? A relationship with a God who made all things? A relationship with the one who can bring everlasting joy into our hearts and what he has stored up in all eternity for those who trust in him. It's one of the reasons that Jesus uses the picture that he does of a lavish banquet. To whet our appetites and to create this hunger in our hearts, a hunger for God and a hunger that will only be satisfied fully when we are with him in his immediate presence. Firstly, we have a lavish banquet. Secondly, we have a generous invitation. Do you see it in verse 3? He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. 
You see, in those days, you wouldn't know the exact timing of a feast due to the nature of preparation. They had to wait until the, the calf was nicely fattened and ready to eat, which means you couldn't put an exact time on it like we do. And so what they did was send out these, these invites in advance to just let people know that this big feast, this celebration was coming. Almost like a save the date note without a date on it. <laughs> and then the final reminder would then come saying, everything is now ready. And that's what we have in verse 4. Look, we have the final reminder. Tell those who have been invited, they've already been invited, that I've prepared my dinner. The oxen and the fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. So come. Come to the wedding banquet. You see how it works? Everything's now ready. The band's playing quietly in the background. The table's been laid. The meal's prepared. The, the cake's on its stand. And so the final reminder goes out. And that's exactly what lands on your lap this morning. In fact, it's there in front of you. An invite to the wedding banquet of the King. And the question for each of us this morning, have you come? Or will you come? Because right now the doors to that banquet are open. This is the heart of the Gospel. That Christ died for sinners. He died for people like you and me to forgive us and to wash us clean. Christ took it all upon Himself on that cross to throw open the gates of heaven that we might enter in and enjoy fellowship with our King for all eternity. You see, wonderfully, the work of Jesus on the cross is a finished work. It's done. It's complete. Everything is now ready. Father's ready to receive. The Son is ready to forgive. The Spirit is ready to renew. And the angels are ready to rejoice. All that is required from us is a willingness to come. Now, of course, God is sovereign. We see that, don't we, at the end of the parable in verse 14. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Not everyone will come. Not everyone will say yes to that invitation. Yet a right recognition of the sovereignty of God does not take away from the responsibility we have to respond to the generous invitation that Christ puts before the people of this world to come to his banquet. That brings us to our third part of the parable because we also look have a painful refusal. Can you see that in verse 5 and 6? But they paid no attention. These are the people that have been invited. They paid no attention. They went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. What an incredible response that is, isn't it? To such a generous invitation. You see that first group in verse 5? Just not bothered, are they? They're not phased. They've received the invite. They know all about the banquet. That's not the issue. Ignorance is not the issue. The issue is they are more concerned with their occupation and their recreation than they are with their salvation. Isn't that the case for so many today? People who are preoccupied with climbing the career ladder, 
academic achievement, sporting success, whatever else it may be. So many people pouring so much of their lives into these things, often we read at the expense of their own salvation. That's what's going on in verse 5. But then in verse 6, we have another group. One whose reaction to the gospel isn't one of apathy. I'm not bothered. It's fine for you. Faith for you is a good thing, not for me. No, in verse 6, we don't have apathy. We have hostility to the message. And we see that same reaction all the way through the Bible, where faithful servants of God are mistreated and killed for what they believe. We see it in Old Testament Israel, and we see it in the New Testament church, and it's no different today. When faithful followers of the Lord Jesus who are loyal to Him uphold the Gospel in all of life, opposition will come in one of two forms. The freeze of apathy that we see in verse 5 or the fires of persecution that we see in verse 6. And those fires are ever so real for so many people around the world today. So many Christians were meeting in fear this very moment that their lives are at stake for simply saying, I love Jesus. That's what so many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing. For us, I think the more likely response is the freeze of apathy, isn't it? A polite nod, faith, that's okay for you, not for me. As people return maybe to their daily pursuits, preoccupied with other stuff, their occupations and their recreations rather than their salvation. And you know what? Both responses hurt, don't they? They both hurt, but just in different ways. But if that's how we feel, how does God feel about the rejection? Well, you can see the answer, can't you, in verse 7. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. God's angry at the way that people have treated the invitation. God's judgment will fall, not just on the corrupt leaders that were hostile to Jesus, but on all who reject the gracious invitation of God. But thankfully, the parable doesn't end, does it, in verse 7, because God has more grace to give. There is more grace from God because He's got a banquet hall to fill. You see that in verse 8? We have a gracious God. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. Bring them all in, says God. Bring them in. You see, when Jesus came into this world, he came as a Jew and he came firstly for the Jews. That's who the invite went out to first. That's what we read, isn't it, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Paul, for I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, I'm not ashamed of being known as a follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That was the order historically. The Kingdom of God was opened up firstly to the Jews. But when they rejected Jesus as their king, that invitation was then opened up to all people. That's what's going on in verse 8 and verse 9. And so the servants go out once more. 
No longer with a targeted invitation just to the Jewish nation alone, but an invite to all people. That's why the king says, look in verse 8, go to the street corners. Not just to the synagogues anymore. Not just to the places where the Jews are hanging out. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. You see, the street corners were meeting places. These were places where people hung out. And this is where God wants his people to be, in the mix, in the public square of life, not hiding away in our chapels, but in the world, inviting anyone we meet to come to the banquet. And as we do that, God in his grace is gathering in people from every walk of life. Verse 10. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Two things to be aware of there in verse 10. Firstly, do you see in the middle of the verse, do you notice who will be there? It's interesting, isn't it? The bad as well as the good. Why? Because moral behavior is not what qualifies people for the kingdom of heaven. The deciding factor is how we respond to Jesus Christ. Heaven will not be full of either morally good people or morally bad people. It'd be full of people who've trusted Jesus and claimed him as their savior. And then secondly, you see at the end of verse 10, such is the grace of God, the banquet hall will be full. It'll be full to overflowing. There will not be an empty seat around the banquet table of God in heaven because God in his kindness has opened up the invitation to all who would come to him in faith. And then lastly, point five, we have a timely warning, don't we? At the end of the parable. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the point in these few verses isn't that someone might sneak into heaven who shouldn't be there. It's a picture of those who think they belong at the banquet but they don't. And they don't belong. Can you see that in verse 11? Because they're not wearing the right clothes. They're not dressed in wedding clothes. And so the big question becomes, what do these wedding clothes represent? Well, there's two main views that are held. Firstly, that they represent the righteousness of Christ. It's what we sing, isn't it, in that famous hymn, No Condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. When God looks at a Christian, he sees them clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in his perfections. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus took our sin and he gave us his perfect life. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange or the joyful exchange. My sin given away to him and his righteous life given to me. And only if we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ can we enter into the kingdom of God. 
But the second view is that these wedding garments represent a life appropriate to God's people. This is what Dick France says in his commentary. I'll read these words quite slowly. It was the claim to belong to the kingdom of God without an appropriate change of life which characterized Old Testament Israel and brought about its rejection. The New Testament people of God must not fall into the same error of claiming to be a part of what God is doing, but there's actually no evidence of faith. There's no awakening in our hearts. There's no genuine life within us. You see, in Jesus' day, lots of people thought they belonged to the kingdom of heaven. Maybe because they were born into the Jewish nation. Or they followed a whole long list of Jewish laws. But more often than not, there was no evidence of salvation. There was actually no sign of repentance in their lives. That's what the ministry of John the Baptist was all about. He was a, a ministry of, of repentance because so many people thought they were okay and they weren't. There was no changed heart. There was no genuine faith. There was no real love for the Lord God in their lives. So which view is right? Number one and number two? Well, I think in its context, probably the second view is the one that is most favored, but it's probably a mixture of both because both views are about a genuine faith in Jesus. That's what counts. A genuine faith in Christ, which leads to a changed life now. Repentance and outworking of what we believe, as well as a right standing before God then. Either way, there's no fooling the king though, is there? No one else challenged this man at the banquet. But the king sees everything. Not just our outward actions, but our inward desires. He sees everything that goes on in our hearts. And the consequence of being found without faith is there for all to see in verse 13. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He thought he was on the inside, but he's actually on the outside excluded from the celebrations and separated from the goodness of God for all eternity. Which means, doesn't it? There is nothing more important in life than what we do with this invitation. There is nothing more important in life than what we do with the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for us. And the final challenge for those who believe you're sat here loving the Lord Jesus this morning. If you've accepted that invitation, do you see the servants in verse 9 and 10? who go out to the street corners and invite the people in. That includes you. Because this divine invitation isn't just something to accept. It is something to accept. To embrace it and say, Jesus is mine. I, I love you, Jesus. I believe in what you've done. But it's not just an invitation to accept. It's an invitation that we also want to share with this world and we need to keep sharing it until the doors are closed and the wedding hall is full. So why don't you take a moment now just to ask yourself how the Lord has spoken to you with regard to the invitation that is before you in the words of God this morning. And then we'll close uh, by singing two songs in response to what we have heard.